Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. I'm joined by Andrew Limegruber. He's a fourth generation farmer in the Imperial Valley in Southern California. And today we're going to talk about his farming operation and some of the challenges around water and labor, the unique markets that he's in with, uh, you know, Western three-type ales, export markets. He's also in the highest alfalfa producing county in the country. Welcome to the Hay Kings Podcast. Hey, John. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with where you produce hay. You're in the very southern tip of California, right along the Mexican border, right? Correct. Yeah. So we're in the southeast corner of California. About, you know, the hay producing area is about 40 miles from Arizona um, to the west of Arizona. And then right against the Mexican border, we have fields that you can see, uh, you can see the border wall. So tell me about this border wall. That's not something that most people interact with most days. So, um, you know, it's obviously a hot topic with uh, the election of Trump and, you know, his kind of campaign issue. But in reality, California, the entire border of California has been walled uh, for over 10 years. We've already had a full fence and wall in our area, primarily because we're such a hot spot for activity and crossings and, uh, and that nature. So they are reinforcing it now with, you know, Trump's push and things like that. But we've actually been walled and it's actually had some benefits because we have properties with pivots and linears that are near the, the Mexican border that we're having a lot of problems with theft and issues like that, that actually uh, it's kind of calmed down since they built the wall a little bit. So, And what you're talking about is folks stealing copper wire off of the pivots and those kind of things? or Right, exactly. Ah, yeah, okay. just... Or even tires. <laughs> oh, jeez. believe it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those tires don't fit on cars very well. I wonder what they use them for. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of farming south of the border, too, So, which is actually nice because it makes a good uh, used equipment market for, you know, any equipment that we're, you know, we've worn out. There's uh, always a market to, to buy it, even when it's, you know, past our needs. Mm-hmm. So, Take me through this 10 cuttings. That is such a foreign concept to most people, but I think there's folks that have heard about that production region. We're, you know, in the middle of May now, so we're just starting our fourth cutting. We've actually uh, don't ever really stop. The alfalfa never goes dormant. It never stops growing. You know, typically we're cutting anywhere from 26 to 32 days. So when you're on that rotation, I mean, it's pretty much every month and it slows down a little bit in those winter months. You're still getting off. The majority of your tonnage is coming off in the spring and the fall because uh, once we get into summertime, we'll get such high temperatures that the alfalfa will actually stress down and it won't grow as well. So this time of year in the springtime, we're getting two ton cuttings. And once we get into the summertime, you're lucky to get half a ton. And then also the test that the quality of hay is differs and, and we have different markets for different times of the year. Primarily, our first three cuttings are very high test, can get 24 plus percent on our proteins and 199 plus relative feed value. So um, we're getting our our real high test cuttings early on. Those early cuttings are a little slower growing and just more time. It's just a a less stressed alfalfa crop. Um, Once we get into the summertime, they go down quite a bit. 
that's when we start, um, you know, marketing towards a horse customer, which uh, our proximity to San Diego and Los Angeles, quite a large horse uh, customer market. And um, those uh, those summer cuttings we can make, uh, while they're not high protein, they're closer to the 16, 17 percent. That's actually ideal for a horse. You don't want to be, you know, feeding them that rocket fuel, especially for most most pleasure horses that aren't getting, you know, a lot of work. So we've we've kind of centered our business. We we run big balers. Those first few cuttings pretty much goes to the dairy market um, in the Central Valley and different parts of California or Arizona. And then some of it gets exported, you know, and that's a whole nother topic. But let's go to that export here in a second. Your retail packages when you're talking about horse hay. That's a three tie bale. You're right. Yeah, out here on the West Coast, very similar, uh, you know, to. Washington State and in your area, you know, everything's pretty much a three tie out here. So we have the the big bells and the three tie. We we kind of have two different grades. We have a retail grade and a stable grade. And essentially they're the same thing, same grade. They're just bell weights. So for a retail customer, that typically means a feed store, someone that's going to sell it by the bell. So they want it almost as light as they can get it. So you're talking a 95 to 100 pound bell. When in reality, a three string bell, you can make an 140, 150 pound bell, which is a lot more efficient, you know, for picking up and collecting, but uh, not as fun to pick up and handle for a smaller horse customer that just has a small pickup and doesn't have any tractors or handling equipment. So ideally, the 100 pound three string bell is kind of what a typical horse customer is is used to. So are you running a chambered three tie? So all our small balers, we we like to run Freeman 370 balers. You know, you still see some Freemans down here. They're kind of, you know, the the center inline Hestons are kind of taking over because they're a little bit more efficient, a little faster baling speeds. But we really like the bale the Freeman baler makes. And also Freeman has a really nice 14-inch chambered three-string bale. That smaller chamber allows us to get one more tier on the trucks and helps us when we're loading a dry vans that are heading back east. We uh, we moved quite a bit of hay to Texas and uh, even Florida, if you can believe it. Um, there's just so many trucks that are empty heading back east that you can get a rel- relatively cheap backhaul. I just love talking to people all over the country and everybody sends hay to Florida. <laughs> yeah, I've sent a few, few loads to Virginia, believe it or not, the last year. Um, there was a real shortage out there. and A real shortage of high-quality hay, yeah. Yes, it has to be high-quality. If we're shipping it that far, we're not sending dry cow. We're not sending anything that's questionable. It's It's got to be our premium hay. You know, what, what we're selling out of the field, a typical retail bale, maybe 10 to $12. Once it gets back east, it's upwards of $26 a bale. Let's take a break there, and we'll get a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Wan, and, and I switched to the Vermeer 604R because I believe this baler is built to last. I bail about 4,000 bales a year, and I think as much money you give for a baler, if they need to bail 4,000 bales a year, even if it's for 10 years, they, they need to get it done. The day I ran it, we absolutely had no issues at all. It fired up, and I bailed like some guy. <laughs> it just bailed all day long. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. Can you take me through the dimensions on a, I'm thinking about everybody basically east of the Rocky Mountains that's scratching their head about a three-tie bale and the impossibility of moving a 150-pound bale. 
Uh, <laughs> can you take me through the dimensions on those chambered versus non-chambered so folks get a, a better handle of that? Typical three-tie is a 16-inch width. That's kind of was the standard. Um, and it's it's about a 42-inch bell length. That's what works best for our New Holland bell wagons or Harrow beds. So it's a 16 by 22 by yep. 40, 42. By 42, correct, yep. yeah. That's the standard. In the past decade, Freeman has come out with a 14-inch chamber where we're, you know, it, it makes a little tighter bell when you're belling those 95-pound bell weights um, because you're shaving two inches off. And it's actually a 21-inch height, shaves an inch off the height as well. It just makes it so much easier when we're squeezing bells into these uh, dry vans, just giving you that extra couple inches of clearance. And when you're stacking them seven high, you know, you take 14 inches off, that's another tier of bales. We're able to get another tier. And when, you know, when you're talking 9,500 pound bales, you can usually max out your volume space before you can max out your weight um, limitations. It's just, it's really helped us. And then also it has applications for the export market. We send a lot of three tie retail 100 pound bales all the way to uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. The Middle East. Is that an uncompressed product? An uncompressed, yeah. It's That's a real premium product. That's for racing camels. That's for Saudi princes that, you know, I mean, if you've ever seen a, a double compressed bale, it looks a little, you can tell that it, it's almost like a rebaled bale that's been baled twice. Um, so it's going to be a little more shattery. It's going to be a little more, it's not going to look as leafy and green as like the alfalfa did coming out of the field once you cut it. That is, I don't even want to speculate what the cost of the final bale is once it's landed all the way over there. Oh my gosh. But there, yeah. <laughs> that, that is a pretty large market that's kind of, the export, there's so many different packaging. I mean, the, we have a lot of presses in our area. Uh, my aunt and uncle actually operate a large export press uh, facility. They're sending about 30 trucks, uh, containers into the Long Beach port a day. Um, seven days a week, they're pressing three shifts. That's their entire business. You know, they, they farm a little, but they're primarily buying hay and then compressing it and exporting it. And they can make 300 pound sacks of hay. They can make double pressed bales, which takes two, three string bales and it compacts it into about half the size. And it's such a dense product. I mean, you're never going to get a hay hook in it. It just looks kind of like an old, a cotton bale. If you can imagine that uh, with the plastic wrap, I mean, it really depends on who the who the end customer is. Japan, they're looking for an individually wrapped plastic wrap bale. The average size dairy in Japan can be, I think it's like three cows. They're looking at a small product that, you know, rural households will have a couple cows. But now when you're talking about customers like the Middle East or China, they can have these mega dairies. 80,000 cows milking in one facility. So that has transitioned to the big bell compresses. So we're belling down here with crone high-density eight-string bales. And so we're taking an 1,800-pound eight-string three-by-four bale, and then they're double-compressing that. And that's just super efficiency, just, you know, feeding these, you know, mega dairies. I mean, that are all state-owned. Is that going into a sleeve? Yes, that some go into sleeve, and then now we've actually started doing a lot where we're we're taking an eight-string bale, and it's loading it right out of the field straight into the containers, 
and it's shipping direct from the field. And you're getting the densities out of your baler. Right. Yeah, we can get 1,800, 1,850 pounds with these Crone eight-string balers. And it's been a game changer. Yeah, because you're cutting out a whole processing step. Right, a whole process. I mean, my my aunt and uncle's facility has 75 uh, employees that you know rotate between three shifts, and if you can, if the farmer can do that himself and load the containers in the field, that's a huge labor savings, which is a critical issue in California. <laughs> What's the minimum wage in California? So currently, um, it depends on the size of your business. You're under 26 employees. It's still $12 an hour. If you're over 26 employees, it's $13 an hour. Over the next three years, it's going to go all the way up to $15 per hour. So uh, we've had to mechanize, and we've been mechanized primarily on everything. Um, there's no hand stacking bales down here at those wages. It just can't make sense, and it's just too high paced and high high production. So we, uh, if you don't own the equipment, then there's lots of custom guys around that you know you can hire out to do it with equipment. I want to back up to that Crone high density baler. You said you're maxing out the containers. Everything right. that I, I've talked to people that tried to do this several years ago, and the moisture gets to be an issue. So that I think that argument comes a lot from the compresses. That's kind of justifying their need and their means. And they've there's a lot of export customers um, that want double compressed hay because it's kind of like a check. It's a you know and it it keeps them from getting a wet bale. It's a quality control point. Right? Quality control check exactly. You know, with proper management, and I'm still doing all of our big baling because with that eight-string big baler, we can cover 70 acres in an hour and a half. And if you bale hay too wet, you can take a product that you might be able to get 220 per ton, and all of a sudden you're getting 120 per ton because now it's dry cow feed because it's too high moisture. With proper management, there there's quite a few in our area now that are that are baling with these eight-stringers and sending it right overseas, straight from the field. That's pretty amazing. What what moisture content are you shooting for there? Because you got to keep the leaves on. It's my understanding that it'll, it will literally rain inside of those containers with condensation if the bales start out with too much moisture. We reject anything over 16%. As we're loading the containers in the field, one gentleman is checking uh, moistures with uh, hay probes. We also have scales on our loaders. So we're able to check weight right there because majority of containers, believe it or not, were, you know, they can fit 30 bales in these uh, high cube ocean going containers. We're usually putting 28 or 29 because we're maxing out the weight. So we have a scale on uh, the front of the loader and we're able to, you know, check weight. It's usually accurate within 500 pounds over the whole truck. And like I said, we're, we're checking each bale individually as it goes into the container kind of as a secondary step. And, you know, the moisture meters on the crone balers, you know, the chamber, they, they're they're fairly accurate as long as you don't have hay that isn't properly cured, that doesn't have any green in Our climate, you know, we were very, a very favorable climate getting back to the Imperial Valley and, and what made Imperial Valley the, the number one alpha, alpha producing county in the nation is that it's an ideally situated valley. We're 100 feet below sea level are behind the coastal range, uh, the Pacific range. So we get a nice rain shadow effect. Uh, we essentially get two inches of rain or less per year. That's our annual rainfall. 
And that only comes when you cut hay, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, August is our rainy season, and they're monsoons that come up from uh, from Mexico in the south. But um, our dry, arid climate allows us to turn over and cure hay in less than thirty six hours. So from cut to bale, we can, you know, and when we have a nice dry west wind, and we have our temperatures which exceed one hundred and fifteen during the daytime. We're curing hay very quickly. Another benefit is to the south, we're opened to um, the Baja Peninsula, the, the Gulf of California. And we're actually only 60 miles from that. And so we get these moisture and dew that come in around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and just gives us ideal uh, moisture to bale in the middle of the night where we're not having a shattery leaf. And that long period of, I believe I've heard you talk about it before, of uh, in moisture versus out moisture, it's a lot more forgiving where you can get a nice, consistent bale product um, with that in moisture coming in. As long as you're there, when the moisture starts coming in, you start baling, there's a good large window there to make some good quality hay. That's almost not fair. <laughs> it's not all rainbows. We're still farming in California, so we have to deal with the regulations and laws of a of a, a state that uh, sure likes to make it difficult on us. The geographic area and just how we have that moisture, I mean, we don't have to rely on those steamers because you can almost set your watch to the moisture coming in every evening here. So you're able to cure the hay all day long and moisture comes in the evening and it makes for an ideal alfalfa growing region. Can you take me through some of the other maybe grass crops I hear about Sudan and Klein grass and Bermuda grass. I, I actually don't know very many places that grow Klein grass. Do you grow any of those? And can you take me through those? Yes. So Sudan grass has been around for quite a while in our area. Um, it was primarily a, a dry cow feed. You know, nutritional values aren't real high, but it's a great filler, a great forage. You're getting, you can get these six, seven ton cuttings. It's a huge crop, towers overhead. Looks very similar to sorghum, you know, kind of in the same family as sorghum. Um, it really has gotten a push lately um, from the export market. So the Japanese customers really like it, and they want it in a small bale, and it's kind of become one of their primary cow feeds. So that's been a big push. Klein grass is relatively new, um, and it is completely derived from the export market. My only way to describe it it almost looks like a typical water grass or nut grass. So it looks more like a weed than it does like a hay crop. And it's a little bit uh, scary to grow because it's completely dependent on the export market. There's not really a domestic market for it. So anytime you hear about these trade wars and tariffs and shutting the port down or anytime the Long Beach port, which is in Los Angeles for us and about a three and a half hour drive away. That's our primary exporting port. It, you know, anytime they have a strike or something, you always get nervous, you know, when you only have really one outlet. Bermuda grass, um, that got its start down here, believe it or not, from uh, the sod and turf industry. Imperial County is a very large seed growing area. We actually grow a lot of alfalfa seed, but Bermuda grass kind of came in in the 80s and uh, we were growing Bermuda grass seed new homes in Phoenix for front lawns and San Diego and Los Angeles and for golf courses and Palm Springs. You can only get two or three seed crops 
uh, in a summer, and it wasn't good to go back-to-back cuttings on seed crops. So farmers started cutting it in between and making hay feed out of it. Got pretty good at making hay, uh, Bermuda grass hay. So it kind of started a whole market, and it's a really forgiving grass hay for us. It can grow on some of our saltier and less desirable ground. It's pretty water intensive, but uh, it it also, you know, we can get up to eight cuttings a year. It does go dormant for us. It goes dormant for about two months, but uh, still getting eight cuttings and upwards of two tons per cutting, it's, it's a very high yielder. And we've got new varieties, um, giant Bermuda grass varieties now that are grown strictly for horse hay, and they're getting upwards of 12 to 13 percent crude protein. So I just had uh, a Texas A&M graduate student do a study on different Bermuda grasses in Texas, and they uh, were sampling all the coastal and T84 and Tifton and all the different Bermuda grasses they have in Texas. They went to a feed store that happened to have a load of my grass hay. It was our giant variety Bermuda grass, and uh, it was in the Houston, Texas area. And I think the crude protein was uh, upwards of 12%. Pretty remarkable for a Bermuda grass hay, but uh, that's kind of the different grasses we grow down in our area. We've tried to grow the Timothy grass, like what you guys are so successful. We sure wish we could because there is a high market um, (laughs) for it down here, but we just don't get the cold degree days. We can't get the the heads on it. We can't get the quality, and it grows so quickly, it gets real woody and stemmy. I was so, just gonna um, stop you and say, at 115 degrees, you're not growing Timothy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that dog don't hunt. A, a new grass that's really making a push lately is the Tess hay. We're having challenges with it being an annual grass, trying to get uh, good stands off of it. But there is a lot of desire for that. The Bermuda grass tends to be a little higher in potassium, and so some horse customers um, have issue with the high potassium. Um, and teff grass seems to be a lower potassium feed that and lower sugar, right? Right, right. It's very highly desirable, um, and it fetches a premium in our area. So, but we don't, we're not able to grow the orchard and the Timothy grasses uh, just because of how hot it is. I think most folks would describe those as cool season grasses. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're the warm season grass capital. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I grow Timothy, and I know that we can hit 95 or 100 degrees. I'm very northeast Washington state. I'm only about 40 miles from the Canadian border. And I'm here to tell you, when it hits 100 degrees, that Timothy is cooked, baked, and done. And just like you say, it gets woody and stemmy. So the real premium products that we put up are cut earlier. And we try to put up a whole lot of hay between 75 and 85 degrees. We have quite a few interesting customers down in our area. We sell to marine bases. We sell to uh, the San Diego Zoo and Wild Animal Park. And for a while there, we were had a big contract with uh, SeaWorld when it was owned by Budweiser, and they had their Clydesdales there in San Diego. And their Clydesdales strictly you know, wanted to eat Timothy, and that's kind of their primary feed that they feed. And so we tried and tried and tried and just could not get the quality that uh that we needed to and it just just not the right climate yeah it sounds like you got the right deal for alfalfa just the perfect climate for alfalfa (laughs) i'll make a deal with you you make the alfalfa and i'll do the timothy (laughs) this has been a blast 
I just love learning about all these different production regions to hear about irrigation. How many hundreds of, what did you say your pivot was putting down? 4,600 gallons per minute. 4,600 gallons a minute that your pivot's putting down. And then there's tile underneath. You're below sea level. You can be 115 degrees. What a unique production region. Thank you so much for sharing. Nice to talk with you, John. Thank you.